0: What's up, everyone? This is WSQF 94.5 Blink Radio, Key Biscayne. I'm sure you're missing my grandiose voice here. I'm yours truly, Mac on the Rock. A lot has happened, man. A lot has happened. Uh, my health is affecting how I do this show, why I do this show. I mean, so much has happened in our country. I've always... I've been happy to tell you that I'm here with you. I'm just as blown away by what's happened. All the things that I thought were true are not true. For the first time, I've watched an American president lose an election based on what he did and said, not his actions, his policies, or his success. Donald J. Trump goes down in history as the greatest one-term president in the history of the United States, a person who... Valuably, bla, valuably fought valiantly for this country, for its methods. He found the, the, the magic potion and peace in the Middle East, moved the embassy to, Israeli embassy to Jerusalem. Of course, gave a massive tax break that liberals just flipped over because they felt they didn't get the majority of it. I, I believe that they're richer than Republicans, period, so they must have gotten a handsome share of it. And the most beautiful thing he did is he made it very obvious to something that you and I have always known fake news. So, today on Statues and Stories with Adam Levinson, he's calling right as we speak. And we're going to discuss if they could really impeach, impeach Donald J. Trump. We'll see. Is this Adam Levinson or not? Can you hear me? Please can tell me it's afternoon. you. I hope you're there. Tell me you're here. Are you there or not? I really yeah. can't
1: tell. Present and accounted for. Can you hear me? I'm oh, no, sure
0: you can. I'm worried. I can about hear you. you. You're can a little you faint,
1: but
2: that's
0: okay. Adam, please answer the phone. We are here. We are here. We are here. What has happened to you that you're not answering the phone? Can you hear me?
1: We, we can hear you fine. Let me text over to man.
0: Uh, now you you hear me just fine, but you don't hear me because I've been say, I've been shouting out to you, and I got no response until now. But you've been hearing me the we, whole time. We hear you fine. Okay, fantastic. Do you have our our fellow uh, servant, public servant, Adam Levinson? Yeah, I'm here. I uh, and Ed Vidal, you guys there?
1: We have we have quite a show lined up for you today, Manny. Are we live? I'm assuming we're live.
0: You are exactly right. We are live here on Blink Radio, Key Biscay 94.5. I've been slowly telling people how great Donald Trump is and why we're going to miss him and why you can't impeach him and, and, and. And then you're supposed to uh, disagree with everything I said, basically.
1: So let me wind everyone back a little bit. So long story short, loyal listeners know that Monday night at 7 o'clock is the Statutes and Stories Hour. For the last uh, month or two, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus with the holidays, but we are back in business today, and we are very topical because, as you just mentioned, Manny, Mac on the Rock, as you just mentioned, we're going to talk about there are house managers who, as we speak, are walking over, I believe. I'm not in front of the TV.
2: But yeah, including
1: over. Uh,
2: Eric Shagwell from California, the uh, Chinese agent.
0: Ah. Oh, so th- Bed how are you today? Is that the first time you've spoken up? Well, uh, I can tell. I just
2: want to clarify who these managers are. Also, they're a very diverse group of managers.
0: Yeah, yeah, they've even widened the uh, the area where the raiders uh, raid it. They've actually made that section between the two chambers wider. So, I guess because of their big fat heads, they need more space to get over to the Senate to handle the articles of impeachment that Adam will tell us is a legitimate act. Go ahead, Adam.
1: So so just to lay out the groundwork, so as we speak, the House managers who previously voted about a week or two ago on the single article of impeachment, and we're not going to get into the merits of the underlying, that's maybe a discussion for you guys to have during the day. Uh, But at night, we talk about the history and we talk about the the legal arguments with regard to the Constitution and the founders. So tonight we're at a high level about, and I'm going to tell everybody what the issue is, but just so everybody knows, the House managers are walking over to the Senate to present that one article of impeachment dealing with incitement of insurrection is the is the basis of that. Of that's that not what Senator Schumer said.
0: Okay, go ahead. Uh, give us some satire, Mr. Senator Vidal. Senator Schumer
1: said that he
2: was inciting an erection.
0: Oh, that's right. That's right. Did Adam hear that in the news? That uh, Adam, you have to make the charges clear. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's a four-page of whatever you want to call them articles. So you can't call it plural. It's a single article, right. and it's incitement of insurrection, and uh, it's, a, it's a hard word to pronounce sometimes. But yeah, uh, yeah. what it boils down to, so what's the goal tonight? So the goal tonight, and I'm, I'm very pleased that it's not just me, but we also have uh, the Marvelous, you'll, you'll give us some of the, the accolades, but the, the Marvelous uh, Ed Vidal because you know, I'm going to be, be up front with what my position is, and I'm going to explain to you why I think that's the case. And here's the question, and Ed's going to give us the alternative point of view. And this is an issue, once we lay it out, where reasonable minds and different scholars are on both sides. And I'll tell you what my position is, and I think why this is the correct answer. But again, we're going to have a, a nice discussion. So the issue is, as everybody knows. January- by, the way,
0: by the way, the House is now in the Senate chambers with their articles at hand.
1: So you can give us a play by play as uh, the liven is up for us, yeah. so he, here is the issue. The issue is, as everybody knows, January sixth was the insurrection, which has never happened in American history before. We won't get into the merits, and hopefully will never happen again in American history. and we can debate right. about that don't later.
0: bet don't bet on an it, atom. it's happening again okay, okay?
1: so with, with that said the the question is, President Trump is no longer president, so the House impeached him. And it wasn't just Democrats, but it was, let's call it bipartisan. There was a bipartisan impeachment before the House, but he is no longer president. So the legal issue, which is the sole focus of tonight's discussion, is can the Senate impeach a former president? So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And, you know, my argument is, and I I think I'm correct here, but again, this is something that the Senate's going to have to vote on. This is something that may go to the Supreme Court, and I'll, I'll be making the case. Why, yes, it is constitutional. And, Ed, well, your position, you want to fill in what the details are on your position?
2: You can't impeach a person once he's out of office under the Constitution.
0: Well, that, but that's exclusive only to the executive in writing because they have impeached judges who were elected. They have impeached, I believe, a senator who was already out of office. So there is precedence for impeachment of elected officials regardless of what position they hold with the exception of the president of the United States, where it clearly says the president in writing. So
1: we, we will go through the, the details and the minutiae on these arguments. But what I want to do at the outset is just lay out the topics that we're covering all under this subject, this heading of whether or not it is constitutional to impeach a former president. So the way I have this organized for tonight is that there are sort of five, categories of, of the discussion, and I think organizationally it makes sense to talk first about what does the Constitution say, and that's where you are leading, Manny, is what is the specific language in the Constitution, and there are six provisions in the Constitution, which I will go through, where impeachment is mentioned. So first of all, what does the text say? The second thing we're going to cover tonight is what I'm going to describe as four different impeachment scenarios. And most of the listeners are going to scratch their head, what are you talking about, Levinson? Four different impeachment scenarios. But if anyone goes to the website, statutesandstories.com, and I didn't make this up, but statutesandstories.com is where we post and we do analyses of old laws and old statutes. So. So we have, and again, I didn't make it up, but I'm borrowing from a very important professor who who came up with these schemes of the four different uh, flavors, if you will, of how impeachment can work. And we'll go into those details of the four different varieties of impeachment. So that's the second thing we're going to talk about. Then we're going to get into the scholarly arguments. And I know Ed has brought a lot of his scholarly arguments with him, but we're going to talk about what the professors and the experts are saying on why it's constitutional or why it's not constitutional, which I disagree with. The fourth thing we're going to do is look at the Federalist Papers because all the listeners of this show know that we are diehard Hamiltonians and Madisonians, so we think it's very useful to look at what the Federalist Papers and what everybody knows. Manny, who are the three authors of the Federalist Papers?
0: Madison, Hamilton, and... Uh, J.J. J. Oh, uh, John Jay.
1: John Jay. So we're going to look at what the Federalist Papers say. That's number four. Oh, by and the way, five,
0: talk- by the way, by the way... If you like to listen to us and you're far away because you're friends of Adam and used to throw rocks at cars together in New York, the live stream is WSQFradio.com. So if you're one of his homies from the neighborhood, please listen in because Adam's all grown up now. WSQFradio.com is our live stream worldwide.
1: And I will tell you, we do have listeners out of state, including in the New York metropolitan area. So we're And if you're also
0: ex-girlfriends of Adam... In that case, you can call after the show, toll-free 1-844-645-9773. And if you've got something to tell me about the real Adam that I don't know, I would love to hear it. Continue. So Adam
1: has been happily married for 20 years. So 20 with years. Said,
0: oh, and if you're from Michigan, you can also call toll-free 1-844-645-9773. And you can also listen to us live stream from Michigan because I know – Adam has traveled the University of Michigan.
1: <laughs> I appreciate it. By the way, the best quarterback in American history in NFL history and maybe at the end we may have time is a Michigan graduate, but we'll leave that for the end. So Right now, other... it's,
0: right now it's Tom Brady, so you know, you're going to have to just take a back seat.
1: That's him. Yeah, he... Br- Brady was a Michigan graduate.
0: <laughs> the first so... Patriot Party president, Tom Brady for president 2024. Okay, go ahead.
1: So the, the fifth subject that we're going to talk about all on the topic of whether or not a post and we can call it different things we can call it a late impeachment we can call it a post-term impeachment and of course my position is that yes it's constitutional and, and ed will weigh in on the other side but but the fifth piece of the discussion so everyone understands where we're going is to talk about the precedent in other words how has this been handled because this is not new territory uh and at least in many respects it's not new so we're going to talk about and i'm going to give you four names so by the end of the hour if we get through this People are going to be familiar with these four names who are precedents. What is a precedent? It means a, a case or a decision that's already been made. So just coincidentally, and I figured this out recently, that the, the four precedents I'm going to talk about tonight all start with the, the first name has a W. So we're going to talk about Walter Nixon. This is not Richard Nixon. This is Walter Nixon, and that's a case from 1993. We're going to talk about Warren Hastings, and that's not President Warren. No, it's that's Warren the hood Hastings. from here from no, I mean South Florida. Elsie Hastings. Elsie. It's, Yep. No, this is Warren Hastings from England and actually from India. He was the governor of India. We're going to talk about that precedent. We're going to talk about William Belknap and William Blunt. And these are examples of impeachment. So we're going to talk about those if we have time, so that we've laid out the territory of what we want to cover. And I I think, as I described earlier, that it makes sense to start with what is the language in the Constitution. And the, the, the loyal listeners of this show have pocket constitutions that they refer to, or just go online and Google the Constitution if you want to follow along, or go to statutesandstories.com under blog, and you'll find uh, the the listing for tonight, which is the subject, the impeachment of a former president. So what does the Constitution say? And I think as everybody has begun to figure out, the Constitution does not explicitly, it does not directly answer the question. It does not talk to post-term impeachment. It talks about impeachment of a president, which we'll talk about, but it doesn't you will not find any language in the Constitution directly, explicitly addressing this question. So you have to. But, but
2: Adam, that there's yeah. a reason for that, and that is that the people who wrote the Constitution were sensible thinkers. And today we have a lot of legal scholars who are suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. So a sensible person would have read it like the founders wrote it, but today we have people with an altered states of mind.
1: That's part of the problem.
0: Okay. So I'm no, letting I, the I,
1: listeners know this is yeah. what they're in store for tonight. You're going to get a good, healthy, rigorous, robust debate and just right off the, the bow, I'm going to point out that I disagree with Ed among other reasons. E- the e- Constitution e- doesn't prevent late impeachment. Right? It allows impeachment and it specifically says that even after you've been removed, you can then be barred from holding future office. So my argument, and it's again not just me, but, is, but the, the but, greater uh, weight of the scholars out there believe that because it doesn't prevent you know what we're calling tonight—post-term impeachment, or late impeachment, or impeachment of a former president. And we're also going to talk as part of these precedents what the state constitutions in 1787 said. We're going to talk about this was inherited from England, what England said, okay. because we borrowed these ideas, and we're going to go into detail okay. of so, how the constitution
2: was written. But, but I will say, I will point out here that
1: the real issue here
2: is not so much impeachment and or conviction. Uh, which is I think now becoming very impossible in this in the Republican Senate, but mostly they're trying to disqualify. The Democrats are trying to disqualify from from running again in 2024. That's yeah, the yeah. And, uh, and
0: who are we to tell the American people who to vote for in 2024
2: now right but well I'm supporting Ted Cruz, but uh, I think citizen Trump will be a major political power and it's, it's to his benefit. They have the option
1: of running. So that's the issue. Go ahead, Adam. All right. And by the way, this is one thing I agree with Ed on, because it's a bifurcated. So that's the legalistic word, bifurcated. There are two parts. And we're going to get into the weeds on this, and I'm going to go through the constitutional provisions. But the reason why I'm calling it a bifurcated process is, number one, the Senate has to decide whether or not they want to convict. And then once they convict, they have to decide whether or not they want to subsequently bar that former office holder from ever holding office again. So that's is, that a, I did is
0: that a separate? Is that a uh, sorry for the interruption? But is that a separate act or vote or yeah, separate yeah.
1: decision? And interestingly, and we're going to get well, um, we're and, gonna,
0: okay we're now. Why, gonna, why isn't it automatic if he's guilty of impeachment? Why isn't he immediately uh, eliminated from running for president again? Why does it have to be a separate act? Um, behalf so, of the-
1: Manny, let me take the first stab at it, then it can jump in. And, again, I'm going to want to lay out the six parts of the Constitution that discuss this. But ours is not to ask why. We have the Constitution, and the Constitution right. makes it a, a two-part inquiry. They're separate, distinct decisions that the Senate has to make. And, interestingly, and listeners, I'm throwing out to you, try to figure out, if you go to the Constitution, what is the vote? And we're going to give the answer. What is the vote for the Senate to convict? It's a very high threshold. So uh, while the listeners are trying to figure it out, but the second part of the conversation, the bifurcated process, is then after they convict, they have to decide whether or not they want to bar from office or disqualify from office, and that is only a majority, a bare majority vote, right. whereas when you convict, that's the high threshold, and here I'm giving the answer. Right. Now, does anyone want to give what the answer is to convict in the it, Senate if 67 percent, two-thirds.
2: Two-thirds. But two-thirds. if you can't get past the first threshold and you don't even reach – the second threshold, which has a lower
1: requirement, right. that's correct. So we we agree on something.
0: Now, why, the, why 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 has so much faith in the Senate? beyond me. Um, I only know of two people that won't vote for impeachment uh, right now. There are two uh, American— yeah, More um,
2: people are breaking against impeachment in the Republican. Only Mitt, only Mitt, Mittens and maybe uh, uh, Cocaine Mitch will vote for impeachment.
0: Yes. Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz are the first to publicly have said, you know, you're wasting our time. And they are. Everybody's wasting our time. I mean, the entire political system in D.C. can't realize that we now know for sure that they are the wings of the same bird, and the American people, one way or another, attacked the perch January the 6th. So. Okay, go ahead.
1: All right, so we're going to talk about the the six provisions in the Constitution that discuss impeachment. And I'm also going to point out as a little disclaimer. So, Ed and Manny are of a particular political view, and I neither agree nor disagree for purposes of the show with uh, some of their humor, etc. But uh, so here we're talking at a high level about impeachment and how the Constitution works and some of the history. So if everyone has their Constitutions handy, and people remember that the Constitution has seven articles, the most important are Article One, Two, and Three. Article One is the legislature, which is Congress. So Article One says, with regard to the House of Representatives, Article One, Section Two and it's a single sentence, that the House of Representatives shall choose their speaker and other officers, semicolon, and here it is, shall have the sole power of impeachment. So impeachment is the House, that's the House's territory, and that's what it says about impeachment with regard to the House, sole power of impeachment. So now let's skip on to the Senate, Article 1, Section 3, real quickly, and this is an important provision. It says the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. So I'm not going to read the rest. It talks about that, you know, if the, the if it's the president who's being impeached and Manny pointed out earlier that this applies to all federal officials. So if it's the president, then the, the chief justice of the United States presides over the trial. If it's another lower, for example, a judge or another federal official, then the chief justice does not have to preside and presumably would not preside. And this okay, is a but later
0: what happened, What happens if he refuses to attend this impeachment of the president?
1: So here we have this is territory which has never been answered before. Uh-huh, so he could because be blocked. we have a former president, there is an argument that the chief justice does not need to preside because it's not the president, it's a former president. Uh-huh. In fact, if I were the, That's a good if answer. If I were Trump, I might be trying to convince the chief justice not to preside. But then again, be careful what you ask for. So let me read you what uh, this is again, Article 1, Section 3, and people can follow the language. The Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments when sitting for that purpose. They shall be on oath or affirmation, and here it is, when the president of the United States is tried, the chief justice shall provide. So he shall if it's the president, but he may if it's not the president, if it's a former president. Like when Elsie
2: Hastings was uh, impeached, I don't think the chief justice uh, presided over that trial.
1: Right. It's very rare for a chief justice to walk over to Congress, except unless it's a, uh, it's a State of the Union address, for example. All right, or just recently, when on January 6th, when Biden was sworn in, it was, on, I'm sorry, January 20th, on Inauguration Day, the, the Chief Justice swears in the president. All right, so let's go to the third clause in the Constitution that talks about impeachment. And this is the most important. So this is the one where you really have to sink your teeth into it. And Ed may disagree how important this is, but in my view, this is the one that answers our question. So what does it say? It says Article 1, Section 3, right below where it talked about the Senate having the sole power. Article One, Article 1, Section 3, here it is. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend farther than to remove, farther than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor. So let me repeat that again. So it's talking about when you have an impeachment, the judgment in the, in the case of an impeachment shall extend no further than, and here it tells you, removal from office. So you remove from office, and then it says, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor. But if he's already no longer in office, then he can't be removed from office. So what's, what's the point of impeaching him? So Let me answer that question. So I agree with you halfway that if you're no longer president, you can't be removed. But, and this gets into one of the rationales for why you permit that second clause, which is to, the ability to disqualify from future office, and it's deterrence. Right? If you have someone that, the, once you convict them as a penalty— the ability to prevent them from holding office. And, and it gets into this issue of late-term late late term impeachments. You know, if, if a president is, is facing – here I'll give a real quick hypothetical – a president is facing a really close election. If he knows that if he loses, that he has carte blanche, he can get away with whatever he wants because you can't impeach him later after the fact, and you can't bar him, you know, some would argue that there's no, there, there's no protection, there's no consequence for that president – you know, whatever he or she may be doing, if there are no consequences, if there are no teeth, and if you're late into well, your term— Well, if it's a criminal act, he will be held liable for that.
0: Well, so far, they, the articles of impeachment haven't even heard his side, didn't present any evidence, so it's kind of a hollow but, article but if, of if impeachment there's, to, there's,
2: to begin if with. If he commits some other uh, heinous acts he will be liable under criminal law. That is true. If the, the president wants,
1: he's out of office.
2: Is subject to both civil yeah. and criminal. I think the best example for what's going on here comes from the Iliad. Uh, when uh, Achilles fi- uh, fought uh, um, Hector, Hector was the, uh, the hero of the Trojans, and he was a trash talker, and all the Greek uh, soldiers were afraid of him. But Achilles fought him uh, hand-to-hand and killed him. And once he did, all the Greek soldiers came over and started stabbing his corpse. And that's what we have here: stabbing the corpse of the former president, who's no longer in office.
0: Well, all I can say is at least Ivanka's in Florida; she can she can primary Marco Rubio.
2: Okay. Okay. She's gonna primary uh, Debbie Blattermouse Schultz.
1: Yeah, she's not gonna primary; she's gonna go against
0: her. Yeah, really. Well, we don't so want to destroy.
1: This I jump in to say I neither agree nor disagree with some of the political <laughs> commentary behind the scenes. So let, me, well, continue, let me continue. Continue. So, with, with regard to the Iliad, the difference there is that if it's a corpse in, in Greek mythology, and who knows if Homer was using actual examples w- when he talked about that? It wouldn't surprise me, right? Because uh, here we're just referring to uh, Brutus, right? How many times does Brutus get stabbed in the back? Or oh, oh, right sorry, right how does right. Caesar? How many times does Caesar get stabbed, including by Brutus? So here the point is that a corpse can't hurt you, but a former officeholder who may want to run again can do institutional harm. And we're going to come back to this when we talk about the Federalist Papers, because there are examples, and it's Hamilton who writes about this, about concerns that you need to have – and we'll talk about it later – responsibility of officeholder and consequences – and we're going to get into the weeds so let me just quickly round out the list of constitutional provisions so we talked about article one section three that it's a two-part decision if you are convicted then you shall be removed but they have to separately decide if they want to disqualify for future office the fourth provision is article two and article two everybody remembers is the president is article two so the executive and it says the president shall grant and have the power to grant reprieves and pardons except in impeachment that doesn't help us tonight because we're not dealing with pardons Uh, then the other two provisions And this one is somewhat important. This is in Article 2, Section 4, again, under the president. And then here's what it says. The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment. And it talks about for conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And it refers to officers. And one of Ed's arguments is going to be, because it says president, vice president, and all civil officers, you may want to make an argument based upon the use of that word, officers, That's also Article 2. And then lastly, and this one doesn't really matter, There's the final place where the Constitution refers to impeachment talks about this is Article 3, which is the judiciary, reminding everybody Article 1, Congress, Article 2, President, Article 3, the Supreme Court Judiciary. So Article 3, Section 2 says that the trial of all crimes except impeachment shall be by jury. So you don't get a jury trial for impeachment. You get better than a jury or worse, depending on how you want to look at it. You get the entire Senate. The Senate is a jury the Senate is the jury. That's the highest-ranking jury you can think of. So that, that are, those are the constitutional provisions. And well, let's now talk about our next topic, which is the impeachment scenarios. And most people, and I included, have not thought through these scenarios, but I think it's useful analytically. And I've got a chart, which I borrowed from a law review article, which, which gives you this grid. So I want everyone to think of a two-by-two two or an Excel spreadsheet with four boxes. So the first question, and I want to credit the professor who came up with this analysis. This is Professor Brian Kalt, K-A-L-T, and he asked these two questions, and the answer to these questions tell you where you land on this two-by-two grid. So the first question is the date of the impeachment, and the question is whether the president is currently in office at the time of the impeachment trial. And obviously here, the impeachment occurred when Trump was president. But the trial takes place when he's no longer president. So there is a no to that question. This does not occur when the trial is not taking place when Trump is president, because he's a former president. So that's the first question. The second question is the date of the offense. In other words, whether or not the president was in office when the conduct occurred. And the answer to this question is yes. Trump was president on January 6th when he is alleged to have incited that riot, which resulted in a uh, thousand but of he hadn't even
0: finished his speech they were already raiding the capitol he hadn't Before, even completed right? his speech
2: yeah uh, uh, yeah but he doesn't want to go into the merits of that no, right? we don't want
1: to go into the merits because maybe that's another show so if, <laughs> anyone, if anyone looks at the website so let me walk you through the scenario so if you know trump today the discussion he was not in office so he's scenario two scenario two is they're no longer in office but the event occurred while he was in office Scenario one is it occurred while you were in office and you're still in office. And here I'm pointing out that all of the prior impeachments of presidents, so that's Trump one, that's Clinton, that's Andrew Johnson and Nixon, and Nixon didn't well, Nixon get that part. Was right, but it was, it was going to get impeached. So all of the impeachments where the process began involve, and you're right, it involved the scenario one, what we're calling, is a yes-yes answer to those two questions. And, of course, that's easy. If it's a yes-yes, we know you can impeach. The question today is when you have a scenario, two, that they're no longer in office, that's the no, but yes, it occurred when they were president. Is that constitutional? And just to round out the list, what are the other two scenarios? So what if it did not occur when you were in office and if you're not still in office? So this might be a situation where before you became president, you committed a crime. Can you be impeached for that once your term is over? Right. So if you remain in office, that's a no, yes. And then the no, no, is I think the most problematic scenario. It occurred before you were in office and you're no longer in office. That's the scenario four. We've never had two, three, or four. We've always had scenario one. So that's, that's the rubric of analyzing. And I will tell you, my position is that scenario one, obviously, if you are in office and it occurred while you were in office, the offense, that's easy. In my opinion, and there, the scholars, many of them will be discussing tonight, support this, that even if you're no longer in office, in other words, if you resign, you get charged by the Senate, and then you resign. No, but, he still- but Trump didn't
2: resign. Uh, Mr. Belknap resigned. It was a strategic resignation.
1: But Trump didn't resign. His uh, term expired. That's right. So we're going we're to discuss this. But in my view and the position I'm taking tonight, which I think is borne out by the, the others that I'll be citing, including founding fathers, this scenario, too, where you're no longer in office, you are still subject to impeachment. And one of the things I would point to, and it's not just me, is look at what Article 1, Section 3 says that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. It doesn't say it has to be while you're still in office, and we'll come back to the text. So scenario three, uh, and, and I'm going to give you an example of a scenario three. Scenario number three would be someone is running for president, and I, n- I know you love to talk about election fraud on this program, on, this, on, on the stage. Yep. But if someone commits, who knows what kind of election fraud to get elected, and then they win the election. Can they be impeached for something that occurred to get them into office? Let's say they bribe election officials or who knows what they do. Yeah, right. So that's why I think scenario three, where it was not conduct while you were in office, it preceded coming into office. But if it touches on your office, there's a strong argument. Scenario three, that it preceded you're being elected, can be impeached. And obviously, you know, the Senate has to make this decision and the Supreme Court may weigh in at some point. So scenario yeah,
2: four program in two years. Say that again. That will be the program in uh, the WSQF program in two years when the Republicans take back the Senate and the House and either uh, Biden or Harris will be impeached for conduct before
1: they were elected during the election. So we have a a high humor bar here. So we've got lots to talk about in future shows. So the fourth scenario, just to move on, is the one I think is problematic. The fourth scenario is you're no longer in office and the offense did not involve office. So scenario number four is the one that is the most dicey, whether or not the the Supreme Court or or Congress would allow it. That's the one that's going to apply to Biden. (laughs) Okay.
0: That's the one that Biden's going to have to answer to in about midterm. Yeah. When he gets impeached for the stuff he did out of office, unrelated to his presidency. Because that's all the well, that's, that's all the, that's all the rights going to set them up to do high crimes and misdemeanors. Ah. Oh God, that's so, too much.
1: Let me circle back to Professor Calt. So Professor Calt, who has this two by two grid, his thinking is, and he agrees that you can have a scenario one, two, and three impeachment. But according to him, he wants to base this decision. It's really congressional jurisdiction. Does the Congress, the House or the Senate, have jurisdiction? under a situation where you're no longer president, and he thinks it makes sense to look at the status of the offender at the time of the offense. So he thinks the jurisdiction should be based upon status of the offender at the time of the offense. And in other words, what that means is, when we talked earlier, the Constitution refers to officer, if you're an officer, the president, vice president, yeah. or officer. So he's yeah. saying that the status of the offender, meaning when you had the office, and uh, the way he describes it is, let me read to you, so it should be limited to offenses committed by public officers as officers, or qua officers to use the Latin. And what I'm going to point out to you, and he points this out also, is when you look back to 1787, and here's a little bit of a history lesson for everybody, and we'll go into more detail later. But 1787 is when that famous Philadelphia summer took place from May until September when they write the Constitution in Philadelphia, 1787. And, and then, of course, the Federalist Papers are written in 1788. So when, when you look at the constitutions, in effect, in 1787, that's what they were focused on. They were focused on the status of an offender at the time of an offense. And also, and this was mentioned during Trump one impeachment, the first Trump impeachment, Hamilton in Federalist 65, was cited by Democrats and by Republicans. Everybody loves Hamilton, and everybody was taking a different spin on Federalist 65, which deals with, among other things, impeachment. So what does Federalist 65 say, among other things? And Hamilton says in Federalist number 65, that impeachment is focused on, quote, the misconduct of public men. So if you're not in office, can you be a public man or a woman? So it's focused on the misconduct of public men and the abuse or violation of some public trust. So if it doesn't involve the public trust, you know, Hamilton is talking about public trust, public men, and the abuse or violation of public trust. So that's Federalist 65, which is why I think and why Professor Culp thinks that a, a scenario one, two, and three are impeachable as long as it relates to the office in one capacity or another. Are there any questions before we jump into now the arguments? But
2: the remedy is removal from office. And if he's no longer in office, then what's the point of the impeachment trial?
0: Yeah, they're obviously trying to keep him from running again. And that's going to backfire big time on yeah,
2: run again. You can't disqualify him from running again unless you can impeach him. That's right. And my point is you can't impeach him because you can't remove him.
0: Uh, You can impeach them in a trial if the Republicans were to balk. I don't see in what scenario they would feel comfortable to do that because they would lose a Trump voter, especially about four... No, no, I
2: know, but now you're getting into political arguments. Well, the whole thing is... a The whole
0: impeachment process is a political argument. It's obvious they're ignoring the legal bona fides because the House just walked into the Senate and dropped the articles on these people. So there is going to be some kind of trial.
2: Led by Eric Shadwell.
0: Now, Adam, uh can the can the Senate bang, bang. can the Senate vote to not even commence the trial? How would that work?
2: Yeah, they could always reject it, but the Democrats have a
1: majority, so they will probably start the trial.
0: Is there so a, we're, is we're is there a jump vote
1: into the we're gonna jump into the arguments by proponents and the you know, those who are defenders of why or why not this is constitutional. But to answer your quick question, Manny I'm going to refer everybody to what we just read from, right? What is Article 1, Section 3 say? And it says the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachment. Well, my question goes
0: to... further, though. Is it an actual vote to commence the trial?
1: So well, Let me talk real quick. It's another way of answering your question is to refer to this Nixon case from 1993. And, you know, history has a ring to it. And it's just it's comical to me that the two big impeachment cases, right? Everyone knows Nixon. But also there was a Judge Nixon. And we mentioned him earlier. This is... Judge Walter Nixon, and he was taking bribes. He was from Mississippi. And after he gets convicted of of taking bribes, he's sent to jail, and he refuses to resign as a judge. And he's actually getting paid salary while he's still in jail. And I'm assuming it's a federal penitentiary in uh, Mississippi. And they bring him up and they impeach him. They impeach him in the House and they do the Senate trial. And what the Senate decides to do, and this is a roundabout way of answering your question, Manny, is the Senate says, this is clear-cut. We've got other things to do. They set up a committee under the Senate rules, and the committee was to, to take the evidence. And then the full Senate would later do the full trial, but they wanted this committee to do the preliminary work because it's all set and dry or cut and dry, and they didn't want to waste too much time on, on what's not going to be a very complicated impeachment or conviction trial. And he made the argument and it goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court that this is wrong. They can't just delegate me to a committee to do some of the work. I need the whole Senate to cover the entire trial, not to to do the preliminary skirmishes before this committee under the Senate rules, which allowed this. And it goes to the Supreme Court. Does anyone want to give a a guess at what the Supreme Court said? And let me tee up the issue. The issue in the Nixon case was, does the Senate have the ability to make rules on how they want to handle an impeachment trial? That's the question. Who who wrote the opinion? Rehnquist. Oh, he said the Senate can make its own rules. Correct. So this, this and it deals with the concept, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that the concept is what's, it's called justiciability. It's also referred to as political questions. So hopefully we won't spend too much time on this. But real quickly, what the Nixon case decided was that um, under this, the name of the case was Baker versus Carr. That the Supreme Court tries to limit the things that it takes care of if it can't put in place judicially manageable standards. In other words, if it has to make stuff up, it doesn't want to do that. And that's this political political doctrine or political questions issue, where if the court's being asked to resolve political questions, they defer and they stay out of it for various reasons. So what the court held and what it cited to, and we read it already, was Article 1, Section 3, which says the Senate shall have the sole power to try impeachment. So Rehn-Quist, And it was a unanimous decision, and you had different concurrences, so the judges didn't agree on everything, but it was unanimous decision that Nixon can make bellyache all he wants. If the Senate wants to delegate part of the trial to a committee, Nixon, meaning the Judge Nixon, Walter Nixon, has no authority or no basis to complain about it because the Senate makes its own rules. So this is my answer, Annie, to your question, whether or not the Senate you know, can hold procedural votes and procedurally how they want to do things. I think the Supreme Court, based upon the Nixon case from 1993, the Judge Walter Nixon case, is going to decide these are political questions. And if it's brought to the Supreme Court, they're probably just going to defer to the Senate. They're going to stay out of the weeds, in my opinion, based upon the Nixon case. So that's the answer to your quick question. So we are ready now to head into the arguments on both sides. And if anyone is on the website, statutes and stories, I want to introduce a letter that was written by 150 scholars and legal experts and professors. And if anyone goes to the website Textures and Stories, there is a link where people can link into this article, this, this letter that was written. And this happens sometimes before you have an important event before Congress where experts will write white papers or they'll write letters, so they're giving their opinion so congressmen and women on both sides can see what the experts are thinking. So, so why am I mentioning this letter? And, uh, again, people can look at, the, look at it for themselves, but the, these, these are constitutional scholars. And Ed will mention other articles and opinions that have been written in some of the newspapers. Some of the prominent newspapers have gotten op-eds that have been, been filling up in the last month or so. But uh, let me talk about this letter. So this open letter was written on January 21st. So 150 leading constitutional scholars in this open letter expressed their opinion that mm-hmm. what we're calling here tonight post-term impeachment is constitutional. The signatories, which include some of the names I'm going to drop, Conservative Federalist Society founders, and uh, we'll give some of the names, but they're careful to avoid, which is what we're trying to avoid tonight. They're not getting into the merits of whether or not Trump should be impeached. They're only addressing the issue of whether or not the Senate has the ability to impeach a former president. And as we're saying, that the members of this letter who wrote this letter, these experts, leading scholars, some of them are on the right, some of them are on the left, so they're staying away from the, the evidence They're just looking at the threshold legal question, the jurisdictional question. Does the Senate have jurisdiction when you're no longer president? And they conclude, and you can see here they are, and I'll mention some of them. They say, yes, there is jurisdiction. So who are some of these noted scholars? Stephen Calabrese, a co-founder of the Federalist Society, Charles Freed, who was a Solicitor General under Reagan. He's also a member of the Federalist Society, in fact, the Harvard chapter of the Federalist Society. Uh, Ilya Soman, she's a law professor at George Mason University and the Libertarian Cato Institute. Brian Kalt, who's the professor I mentioned earlier, a leading scholar. He wrote a 130-page law review article 20 years ago, and he's the guy that did that grid that we talked about. So these are some also, uh, I know one of Manny's favorite professors from Harvard is Lawrence Tribe. Uh, Who wrote the book on constitutional law when I was in law school? So Lawrence Tribe does not surprise anybody, and I agree with Lawrence Tribe here that uh, you know. So these are the the group of bipartisan experts who say that yes, you are subject to impeachment after your term is over, whether or not you resign or if the term ends. So let me walk everybody through what their arguments are, and Ed can jump in as he sees fit. Manny, feel free to do do the same. So how do they start the article? I pointed out, they talk about how they have differing political outlooks, but they agree on this threshold question. And let me read you from the article, the letter. So the letter says that its analysis is based upon the following, the text and structure of the Constitution, the history of its drafting and relevant precedent. And importantly, and this gets to one of Ed's points, the letter reasons that the Constitution's impeachment power has two separate components, which, according to these experts, which each need to be given full effect. So part one is you convict or not convict on impeachment in the trial. Part two is whether or not you vote to remove or or disqualify for future office. And they're saying you have to give effect to both parts because they they work separately, uh, although they're related. The letter goes on to say, and here I'm going to summarize this conclusion. The letter explains its analysis, as we said, is based upon the structure, the history of drafting and relevant precedent. And that first aspect of the discussion is removal from office. So that occurs automatically. If you are convicted by the Senate, you're automatically removed upon conviction. There's no dispute about that. That's what the Constitution says.
0: Okay, so so that's that's the answer to my question.
1: You shall be removed if you are convicted. But part two is the disqualification question. So these, these legal experts argue that the second question is disqualification from holding future office, which occurs in those cases where the Senate deems, which is the Senate's choice, deems disqualification appropriate in light of the conduct for which the impeached person was convicted. So the Senate has to separately decide. And you could vote to convict on one, but not to bar from future office. And it would not surprise me, and I don't want to try to read tea leaves, but I could imagine a scenario where you may have some senators who vote yes, he is guilty of what was accused to have taken place, but I don't think it rises, not me, Adam Levinson, but some senators might say it doesn't rise to the level for political reasons or other reasons And, many, I'm agreeing with you that this this second decision is a political— it's almost, by definition, a political decision whether or not you want to bar someone from future office.
0: That's a Romney—it's a a, a Romney decision, so he can join the Democrats on that very uh, sentiment.
1: So continuing with some of the analysis in the letter from these 150 experts, while admitting that impeachment is the exclusive constitutional means of removing a president, yes, if you're convicted— There's no question. It's exclusive and it's automatic. You're automatically removed from office if you're convicted. The scholars emphasize that nothing in the Constitution limits impeachment to currently serving presidents. Nowhere does it say you have to be currently serving. All right, so continuing with their analysis, nothing in the provision authorizing impeachment, um, let's see, for removal, limits impeachment to situations where it accomplishes removal from office. Indeed, such a reading would thwart the potential – and nullify the vital aspect of the impeachment power, which is the power of the Senate to impose disqualification, which is a penalty. So they're arguing in order to give full effect to both Article 1 and Article 2 with respect to impeachment. The correct conclusion, according to these experts, and I agree, is that former officers remain subject to impeachment after leaving office for purposes of permitting imposition of punishment, which is disqualification. According to the letter, the rationale, and we touched on this earlier, for post term impeachment is deterrence. And here's the language that I like. They say if an official could only be disqualified while he or she is still held in office, then an official who has betrayed the public trust, that goes back to Federalist 65, so someone who betrayed the public trust and was impeached could avoid accountability simply by resigning one minute before the Senate's final conviction vote. But so that's about not the it. case here. We had an expiration of the term. True. But the question, the threshold question is, can they do the trial? And if you don't allow the trial, you could totally thwart the ability of the Senate to remove from office for subsequent disqualify in the future by just resigning. So you'd be taking away that power from the Senate by just resigning. And we'll talk about some of the exceptions and some of the precedents. So the framers didn't, according to the letter of these, these experts, the framers did not design a Constitution's checks and balances to be so easily undermined. All right, so the letter then goes into history and past practice, and, and Ed, feel free to chime in here if you want. But history. Okay, well, I think the the letter is, is really pushing uh, the argument,
2: uh, and I, I understand where you read uh, the framers did not design the Constitution's checks and balances to be so easily undermined. But then if you keep going in their arguments, the real key argument that they make is they say more broadly a singular concern of the framers is devising our constitutional system uh, to the uh, against the danger of power-seeking populists of the type referred to as a demagogue, and that really this is just a political biased argument. This is Trump derangement syndrome. These are buzzwords: popul- power-seeking populist, demagogue. Uh, the the framers understood that he would retain the loyalty of his or her supporters. Uh, they probably would have said his supporters. And that's true. There are 75 million voters for Trump, and at least 50 million think that the election was stolen. So what they're doing is they're going beyond a political, a legal argument, and they're making a political and really biased argument. Then he goes to say, uh, the person who sought to overthrow our democracy uh, must be, uh, and the plot reached its crescendo, let me tell you the part, the part. This is a totally partisan spin of the events on January 6th. Trump did not incite an insurrection. The, the, what happened on January 6th was a false flag setup. The attack Pla- started planned before and- Trump finished his speech. Trump has, has had 600 uh, rallies since he started campaigning in the summer of 15. Before that, Tea Party rallies run back to February. 09, when I participated in downtown Manhattan, and there has never been this kind of violence in a in a Tea Party or a Trump rally. Not at all. Well, wait,
0: time out. Uh, you pointed out, you you painted the parameters perfectly, but who really s- sought the game? Who really benefited from the raid on the Capitol? The Democratic well, this Party? Was,
2: this is like the Reichstag fire that was set by the National Socialists, I mean, and they blamed the International Socialists.
0: There was a serious, there was a the serious case to be the had right in Arizona.
2: Fire of American civilization, and I think it was spun against the Trumpers. It was conducted mostly by Antifa and BLM writers. There you go. Who had been rioting all summer? Yep. Who was, you know, who's been upset about? If, if there's a threat to democracy, that was a much bigger threat. And the police department in the Capitol was intentionally left weak in order to create uh, a problem.
0: By, so, Ed, by Pelosi I'm, I'm, and Schumer, out,
1: Ed, Ed, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. You, you can't yeah. help yourself, right? So you, you realize we want to talk about the threshold constitutional question about whether or not the Senate has the authority, whether or not it's constitutional. But I know you, you want to bleed a little bit into the arguments of the merits, right? And, and, but they, but they do that. In this I, I'm, I'm purposely not, I'm not responding to that, and I disagree. Mm-hmm. But we're not. Today is not that discussion. I'm, okay. I'm sure there'll be plenty of opportunity for a discussion, uh, respectfully. Okay. So, uh, but that's, yeah. that's
2: really what they're leading to.
1: This, it's in this letter. We, I know we don't want, you don't want to discuss it, but it's, it's
2: in this letter. And then the, the final paragraph talks about Secretary of War William Belknap, who resigned minutes before the House voted on his impeachment in 1876. I think that was the Grant administration. Correct. And, uh, so, but that's different. Trump didn't resign uh, in, in, you know, just before he, his term expired. So I don't think this, this letter by 150 scholars uh, holds water, including Lawrence Tribe, who is a noted Trump derangement syndrome victim. Um, so I, I, I'm not impressed. I've got some good scholars on my side, starting with Richard Epstein, my old professor at the University of Chicago, was now semi-retired at the Hoover Institute. Uh, we have uh, Lawrence Lessig, who was a federal appeals court judge. He did a, a op-ed in the uh, Washington Compost and I think maybe also the Wall Street Journal. So Lessig is a... And then the other guy is Bill um, Jacobson from Cornell. So I've got plenty of very good scholars. So I, w- I
1: would not... Uh, I wouldn't give this up. So let me let me interject a little bit of humor here. So when lawyers bring in experts, you know, right. we tell the decision makers or the juries, it's not the yeah. the number of experts. Although here I think the weight of authority is there. are More experts who think it is constitutional. Uh, you, you go by when a decision maker has to or a jury, for example, has to make a decision. You go by what's referred to as the greater weight of the evidence. So it's not the weight of all the experts. It's the ones that you find to be most convincing. And, you know, people will make up their own mind, and the Senate will obviously have to make up its own mind if they agree. And this, you know, politics and the way that the Constitution works, the party in power today is not going to be the power of the party in power in the future. So you can't just think about the fact that this particular case, you have to understand what the consequences may be when the shoe is on the other foot. So let me give you some of the other arguments in the letter, which some of which we touched on. Let me also, because we, we want to talk about some of the precedents, and you mentioned Belknap. So you yep. are correct, and, and people remember from their history that uh, Grant was the president after 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 Lincoln was assassinated. You had Johnson and then after yep. Johnson, yep. who was impeached but not removed. You had Grant for two terms. So that was referred to as the you know, after a war. People can celebrate a little bit. Uh, so this is the Gilded Age. So this is uh, this is uh, Mark Twain referring to this period of time. There was a lot of corruption in the Grant administration. Grant was sort of a hands-off president. He delegated, and as it turns out, just to give some color. So Bill Knapp was the Secretary of War, and uh, he became very famous for these extravagant parties he's throwing. And also he went through two wives who were were flaunting all the excess wealth and the way that they attired themselves. And uh, as it it turns out, people started asking questions at a salary of $8,000. How is he paying for all these parties? And we know he doesn't come from money. This is the Secretary of War. Where does all this money come from? And, of course, the answer was he was getting payoffs. $20,000 Uh, $20,000 in bribes for military contracts. So uh, once the cat's out of the bag, he races, as Ed was pointing out, he races to the Congress to turn in his resignation, or maybe to Lincoln to turn in his resignation, thinking that as long as he resigns, that he wants to cut through, you know, to undermine their ability to, to impeach him. And, and the, the House says, sorry, we're impeaching you. And then the trial takes place in the Senate. So let me talk about what the precedent stands for. So the Senate, interestingly, you know, I discussed this on on the website Statutes and Stories, the Senate has enough votes, a majority of senators to convict, but they don't have the required 66 and two thirds. So he is not removed from office, but they make it very clear. And I want to quote this because I think it's important. So the House managers to establish what the precedent was, uh, here it is. So they say, let me skip ahead. And if anybody wants to go to the website, you'll be able to find this. So the House managers, in creating the congressional records for people to look back at, this is what they, they read into the record. So the House managers interpreted the Belknap precedent as supporting Senate trials of former office holders. So here's the quote. The managers believe that great good will accrue from the impeachment and trial of the defendant. It has been settled thereby that persons who have held civil office under the United States are impeachable, and that the Senate has jurisdiction to try them, although years may elapse between the discovery of the offense or offenses, subjecting them to impeachment, skipping ahead, that to settle this principle so vitally important in securing the rectitude of the class of civil officers referred to, it is worth infinitely more than all the time, labor, and expense of the protracted trial closed by the verdict of yesterday. So the House managers are making the point that, yes, we're solidifying the precedent is the Senate can hold and can convict if they want, even though you're no longer in office. And in Belknap's case, he resigned to try to avoid a a trial, and uh, they they held the trial. And the the managers make the point that it may take years to figure out that the crime was committed. So they're holding the door open for post office impeachment. was Belknap prosecuted for bribery? That's a good question. We'll have to circle back to that for another night. And you're right, he should have been. If he was committing bribery and the statute of limitations hadn't run, and presumably it had not, then, yeah, you should be in jail back in 1876. All right, yep. so, so that was that was one of the precedents, and there are some more. Let me give you another precedent, and then we'll go back to some of the legal arguments. So we said we're going to throw out some names tonight. We mentioned Walter Nixon. That was 1993, the corrupt judge who made the Supreme Court decision that the Senate makes its own rules when it comes to impeachment. We talked about William William Belknap, who was the Secretary of War, 1876, during the Gilded Age, also William Blount, B-L-O-U-N-T. So this is an interesting precedent. William Blount, or Blount, B-L-O-U-N-T, was a member of the Constitutional Convention in 1787. He is a very influential North Carolinian. He's part of the North Carolina delegation. And North Carolina to the west of the state was Tennessee, and to the west of Virginia is Tennessee. So after the revolution and after the Constitution's written, he becomes the territorial governor of the Tennessee territory. And what is he doing while he's the governor or the territorial governor of Tennessee? And the answer is he's conspiring with the British in Louisiana and Florida, so he's arguably committing treason. They figure out what he does, and they show him the evidence. And uh, long story short, he doesn't want to talk about it. uh, But all the members of Congress love this guy. He was a signer of the Constitution. So the question becomes, and, and now after he's the governor of the territory of Tennessee, he's elected to the Senate from Tennessee. So you have a member of Congress who's a senator being tried for impeachment. This is the case in 17—it's about a year, 10 years after the Constitution was written. So let me give you the date. So 10 years after the Constitution, this is 1797 time frame. Let me give you the specific date. So this is—and it's again, it's discussed on statutes and stories. So the date is 1798. 1798, about 10 years after the Constitution, which was ratified in 1788. So what, what is the result of that decision? So while serving as governor in the Tennessee Territory, Blanc conspired to give the British control of then the Spanish-occupied Florida and parts of French Louisiana, and of course this is before the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, this is sort of a wild west, there was a lot of shenanigans going on there, so he was subsequently elected to the Senate. So after the plot was exposed, he was quickly impeached by the House and expelled from the Senate. As a member of the Senate, they expelled him and added, at his impeachment trial, so he is he is removed from the Senate, he is expelled at his impeachment trial, and obviously he's no longer the governor of the territory of Tennessee. So at his impeachment trial, you know, there are arguments that are going to be made. At his trial, Blunt's lawyers argued that he could not be tried since he was no longer sitting as a senator, and this argument was rejected. Ultimately, he was acquitted by a vote of 1411 on the basis, and this was a narrow decision, that senators are not Article Two officers, so he's not subject to impeachment because he was not an officer. He was only a senator. And I'll point out to you that you know I would say this is an important precedent from the standpoint. It's only 10 years after the Constitution, and they're holding a Senate trial of somebody who was a former senator and former governor of Tennessee, from the territory, so the the folks who were in that Congress in 1798, many of them were the framers who wrote the Constitution. So these these guys and gals, when I say gals, but you know the the members of that Congress in 1798 were were not far removed from the Constitution. So they understood how it was written, and they held up the, the trial and thought it was constitutional. So I think that's an important precedent, and that again, to summarize the name, to repeat the name is William Blunt, as opposed to William Belknap. So. Do you want me to continue with this, some more of the arguments, or do, you want, do we want to pause, Ed? Do you have anything to add? No, I think that uh, in that case, that was uh, an allegation of
2: treason, and the Senate, it seems to me the Senate acted too quickly to expel him, but maybe justifiably so because of the treason uh, argument. And then they had the trial anyway, but they—you know—they what did they do? Did they disqualify
1: him from holding public office? So the vote was 14-11, but 14 to 11 is not enough to get the the necessary right. conviction. So he was acquitted. He was acquitted by a majority vote to convict, but not a two-thirds majority. Right. So I I think that's an important precedent. And for the listeners, what Ed just did, he's a very potent and effective lawyer. You try to distinguish that precedent. That's what lawyers do, right? One one side likes the precedent, and they try to say that that should govern our situation. Those who don't like the precedent distinguish it. They try to say, no, it doesn't apply for various reasons, and many we uh, re- referring to popular culture. That if the law is not on your side, you know, if the law is on your side, you, you pound the facts. If the, the the law is on your side, but the facts isn't on your aren't on your side, and I'm, I'm blundering. Then you her. you, know, you
0: he, fake it till you make it.
1: Right. So you either <laughs> pound the law, you pound the facts, or you pound and it's, it's in front of you and you bang it with your hand. What, what else can you, the, you, you pound, pound the, the table. table? Right. So you either have to pound the law, you pound the facts, or you pound the table, or the machete so much- like No Diego. All right. So let me give you some more of the arguments. So one set of arguments is these precedents, and we can give more precedents if we wanted to. But another argument had to do with what the Constitution said in 1787. And the point I want to make is that, remember, there were 13 original states. Twelve of them had written constitutions. Ten of those constitutions in 1787 addressed impeachment? So it is useful, and it's not just me, but it's these, these professors look at those constitutions that served as the basis, as the model of the U.S. Constitution. And those state constitutions, 10 of them dealt with impeachment explicitly. Five of them said you could impeach someone for post-term impeachment. So it specifically governed the situation. Five of them were silent and didn't prevent it, but just didn't talk about it like the U.S. Constitution. So the argument is that since half of the state constitutions that dealt with impeachment specifically said this is okay, that the founders who are borrowing from the state constitutions would have thought that post-termination impeachment is okay. I'm also going to mention to you, let's talk about the Federalist Papers, and we're running out of time. But the other precedent that I think is useful to talk about is Hastings, Warren Hastings. So this is just funny and comical, how the way that history works and timing. So while they were writing the Constitution in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, lo and behold, there was a big impeachment trial taking place in Congress. And it takes about four weeks or so for newspapers to arrive in the United States. But the members of Congress, and it's George Mason, was one of the members of the the Constitutional Convention. where you know they're writing the Constitution in Philadelphia at Independence Hall, and George Mason brings up the example of this is again Warren Hastings who is being impeached in England and before Parliament, and this gets into a discussion by members of the the, whatever you want to call it the, the Constitutional Convention, and they take into account and they discuss when they're drafting the Constitution for impeachment, the Warren Hastings case. So lo and behold, what happens to Hastings, and we don't have too much time for it, Hastings was the governor of India. Of India. India is a territory, back in, the, in this time frame, of the, of the sun never sets on the British Empire. So after he was no longer the royal governor of India, and it wasn't a situation where he was committing a crime, it was a situation where he was allegedly, and eventually he is acquitted, but where he, it was a mis, misuse of office. Right and and, and the, the the what let's call it the, the bad you know, he he wasn't benefiting himself, but he, he's not properly filling out his duties, and they're disagreeing with some of the procedures he's using as the royal governor of India, confiscating land and other things of that nature, and it, was, it results in a, a big protest in India, and a, and a revolt is taking place in India, and eventually he's forced to leave. Uh, and, and coincidentally, here's this another little interesting twist of history. He is replaced as the royal governor of India in 1787 1787 timeframe by a, fa- a famous name in the American Revolution, which Cornwall. is... Cornwallis, exactly. So the general who was defeated at Yorktown, Cornwallis, gets sent – and he's a very high-ranking British general – gets sent to India to replace Warren Hastings. So that's a little twist of history. But the point is that the founders of the Constitution, the framers, specifically mentioned on several cases the Hastings impeachment, which involved an impeachment of somebody after they were no longer in office. So the argument here is not only the state constitutions permitted impeachment after someone was no longer in office, but the British system, which was also a basis – in fact, it was Hamilton who brought it up, and we'll talk about the Federalist Papers in our final minutes – but the British system allowed post-termination impeachment for some of the well, reasons.
2: that may have to. been because India was so far away, they couldn't get them while it was going on.
1: It is an excellent lawyer, because you're now talking about changes in technology, Right. And changes in distance, so, so that factor into it. But if the Constitution is written, you know, and we can have a discussion about originalists versus uh, you know, changing circumstances. Uh, but um, So let me talk about some of the Federalist papers. So we, we mentioned Federalist 65, but I also want to mention some of the other important Federalist papers. So Federalist 51. So this, this Federalist document is written by Madison. And what is Madison talking about famously in Federalist 51? And, and Mandy, you've heard this before. So yes, yes, we've quote. discussed that before. So Federalist 51 is, is Madison saying that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. So if, if angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. So Madison is talking about checks and balances. And in Federalist 51, he's, he's describing the various levels of checks and balances that they were concerned. Remember, they didn't like the king because the king usurped power and uh, was a tyrant a tyrant, the American colonists did not like the king, so how do you prevent someone from doing what the king did, and the way you prevent someone in a republic from, uh, from becoming a demagogue and taking control, which is what happened in Rome? Right, where the republic gets defeated by dictators, and we can talk later about what does it mean to be a dictator, but checks and balances and separation of power. So that's what Madison is talking about in 51. And let me quote you a little bit from Federalist 51. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must find and enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. So I invite people, I'm not going to read it all, but I have some quotes from Federalist 51. And basically, Madison is saying you need checks and balances. And I'm arguing that the reason why you need checks and balances is that there is accountability and you need the ability to hold a president or former president accountable. Let's go to Federalist 27. This is Hamilton, my man Hamilton. Hamilton emphasizes in Federalist 27 the importance of accountability as a guard against sedition. So get a load of this. While Hamilton was not discussing impeachment in Federalist 27, it's clear he was concerned about the risks of what he calls impunity. What is impunity if you're able to get away without consequences? So for Hamilton, he, was, he thought that having impunity was a strong incitement to sedition, and we've sort of come full circle, because some are arguing that January 6th was all about sedition, or at least in the minds of some, it was seditious. So what does Hamilton say in Federalist 27 here? I'm going to quote, the hope of impunity is a strong incitement to sedition the dread of punishment, a proportionally strong discouragement to it. So here we go. Will not the government of the Union, which, if possessed of a degree of power, can call on its aid the collective resources of the whole Confederacy? So uh, not to read it all together and to butcher it, but he's basically saying that a turbulent faction, and again, I invite people to go and to read it, so he's talking about the reason why you need to be able to use the force to have consequences so people don't have impunity to get away with whatever they want, especially if they're dangerous. Federalist 70. Federalist 70, real quickly, let me refer to Federalist 70. This is another Hamilton Federalist paper. He's making the broader point that every magistrate, including the president, ought to be personally responsible for their behavior and if you can avoid culpability and responsibility by just resigning then you're no longer have responsibility or culpability so hamilton says in a republic every magistrate ought to be personally responsible for his behavior in office the reason which in the British Constitution dictates the propriety of a council, and he talks about the British system, how the British system works, which we mentioned earlier, and then Federalist 65, and we mentioned Federalist 65 earlier, so this is where Hamilton talks about impeachment is for misconduct of public men involving an abuse or violation of public trust, and he acknowledges, and I suspect many Republicans will point to this in Federalist 65, that the prosecution under impeachment, which is always dangerous, when you do impeachment, it arises tensions, it arises passions on both sides. So he points out that impeachment always runs the risk of agitating passions of the populace, and he says you still have to do it, but that's why it's the Senate, who are you know the, the highest ranking, if you will, in the federal government. These are the ones that are supposed to be above politics, and we can debate about that. But the reason why it's senators, not judges, is because. Uh, you know, and we can talk about the reasons, and he does that in Federalist sixty-five and other places, you know, why certain things are assigned to the Senate. So that's the, the Federalist Papers, which I think bear on this, and you're going to see them quoted. I have no doubt about it in in some of the argument before the Senate. So let's also let's see how much time we have. Uh, you know, we're almost time to close. So, so Manny, do you want to uh, have any other questions, or should we try to wrap it up?
0: I would I would give your your closing statement, and uh, hopefully Vidal would have like a, a victorious uh, finale as well. I'm pretty much uh, convinced that, uh, that Donald Trump, uh, you know, will not be impeached.
2: He won't be convicted, you mean?
0: Oh uh, Yes, he will be impeached. He won't be convicted, correct.
1: Right. So he was impeached in both cases. The question is whether or not he'll be convicted. He was not convicted on Trump impeachment one. And that's the big question, whether or not he'll be convicted in impeachment two. So to wrap it up in the high-level summary, I agree with the 150 experts who wrote that letter. And we mentioned who some of these, these professors were. And their view is when you look at the history of the drafting of the Constitution, when you look at the ratification debates for the Constitution, when you look at the British examples, when you look at the state constitutions in 1787, When you also look at the precedent since 1787, there's nothing in the Constitution that prevents post-termination impeachment or late impeachment. There's nothing in the Constitution that prevents it, although I will admit the Constitution doesn't directly address it. But you have to cobble together and look at the language, and that's the way Ed's going to respond. But I think there's nothing that prevents it. In fact, we have held impeachments, not of presidents but of other officials in the federal government, and it only makes sense in order to have accountability and in order for there to be consequences and to prevent, and this is the, the concern that Hamilton had, about demagogues and about the abuse of the system. And democracy, I think we learn, can be fragile, and this is one of those protections. And at the end of the day, it's a two-part process, process number one, or you can say it's a three-part process. The House impeaches. If you get through the House, you go to the Senate for the trial. If you're convicted by the Senate, two-thirds. Then you are removed. There's no discussion. It's automatic. You are removed if you're convicted by two-thirds in the Senate. But yet you have this other issue. This other remaining part of the puzzle is after you are convicted, the Senate still has to decide by a majority vote if they want to use this big hammer or this consequence of future disqualification. And that's a case-by-case decision that the Senate's going to have to make. Assuming they decide to hear the trial, and I think they will hear the trial, but I'm not going to predict what they're going to decide to do. I, I think it'll be interesting to follow, and uh, that is my quick summary.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ed, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I would say that this is another inning in the core political
2: battle in America today, which is between we the people, which is the Constitution, and what I would call the dictatorship of the technocracy. You can see it in the letter by the 150 experts. Uh, They're saying we need to check this power-seeking populist. Uh, This is a singular concern. He calls calls Trump a demagogue. Uh, They're concerned about the loyalty of his or her supporters, 50 to 75 million voters, who sought to overthrow our democracy. That's ridiculous. Plot in its crescendo or reach its crescendo. So I would say this is, Another inning in a continuing uh, war, civil war, between we, the people, and the technocracy. And the technocracy is trying to knock out one of the people's champions. Uh, I don't think they'll succeed at that because I don't think the senators will convict them. Uh, But I think this is a continuing battle. I think citizen Trump will be a very strong political player. He's already uh, announced he's planning to primary the 10-10 congressional Republicans who voted to impeach him, starting with Liz Cheney and uh, Fred Upton of Michigan, uncle of the blessed Kate Upton. Uh, So I think that's going to be the battle. It's a continuing battle in the Republican Party between the Trumpists, who are about 90 percent of the votes, and the establishment, which is cowardly, incompetent,
1: and corrupt. So, Manny, can I have a 30-second rebuttal real quick?
0: Uh, you can have uh, three or four minutes if you like.
1: So, so real quick, I know people want to get back to dinner. So I'm not going to go point by point And, you know, it makes its case. And this is the democracy, how democracy works. there will be interesting arguments. But uh, I'm going to point out that if you don't want to listen to the 150 experts, and I give a link on statutesandstories.com, the Congressional Research Service, and they work for Congress. They work for the House and the Senate. So they're bipartisan. Yeah, so the Congressional Research Service did, and I give a link, did an analysis of this question, whether or not you can impeach a post-termination president or a a president who's no longer in office. So they agree the greater weight of the evidence supports impeachment. So don't take it from the 150 experts. You can look at the Congressional Research Service from section.com. The other point is, on this second decision, which is an independent decision that the Senate has to make, if they convict, the, the second decision is, do they want to disqualify? And I don't want to read tea leaves, but there's an argument that some senators may say that if they don't like Trump, and I'm avoiding getting into the weeds there, some of them may say it is good for the Republican Party. And again, this is why this becomes a political process when they decide what to do as the, as the penalty, the penalty phase, if they want to disqualify. Some of them may think it's actually good for the Republican Party to disqualify him from future office for some of the reasons Ed was mentioning. But it's always a pleasure talking with everybody. Happy 2021. Okay. And uh, it'll be an interesting Super Bowl.
0: Well, yep, thank you. Okay, take care my friends. That was the end of the Statues and Stories hour about the future of impeachment. Thank you very much, Adam. Stay free, my friends. Okay. We'll be thank back you. we'll be back one day shortly and we'll in the meantime, we'll keep rock and roll alive. Goodbye.